Volume 2, Chapter 22 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Koromawit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 22 Within my bosom there are thoughts of happier days than these, and softness steals upon the steps of recollected love and turns revenge to weakness. Blanche of Navarre From the same to the same, April 7th. Evelyn wept for hours over the letter which I this morning laid before her. The letter was from her husband, and every word in these well-known characters inflicted a double pang. She sat with her eyes fixed upon the open letter, which lay upon her lap, and her tears raining fast and thick upon it, though their lids never closed. Ellen and I made no attempt to disturb this salutary outburst of penitent grief. Only once Evelyn turned to us, and then she said, in an almost inarticulate voice, I would not dare press my lips to it. I have lost the right. It would seem like polluting with my touch the hand that wrote. The letter was as follows. From Mr. Merritt to Evelyn. April 7th. God forgive you, Evelyn. The hopes and joys of my whole existence were centered in you and you have annihilated them. I lived upon the breath of the world's good repute, and you have covered me with shame. God forgive you. I am too utterly miserable to think of reproaches. Of what avail would be the interview which you desire? Could it blanch your sullied fame or reanimate my crushed spirit? Yet come, I have ever been weak when you were concerned, and I blush at the avowal, in spite of your dishonor, I would behold you once more, Evelyn. But we may not meet openly, for the world must not know of my weakness. Come to me at five this afternoon at my counting-house. You will find me in the inner chamber. The clerk shall be absent." and the street at that hour is generally deserted. Evelyn, Evelyn, what a return you have made for my illimitable love! Though you held not your own honour dear, oh, was not some sacrifice due him whose soul harboured no thought save to promote your happiness? I spare you my reproaches. If your wretchedness bears any resemblance to mine, you need them not. Come to me at the appointed hour, despoiled of the priceless crown of purity, fallen and disgraced. Still, let me see you, Walter Merritt. April the 8th. The carriage that was to bear Evelyn to her husband stood at the door. The clock had struck the appointed hour. Still, Evelyn lingered. Her strength had departed. She lacked courage to meet him, whom she had irredeemably wronged. "'The hour has passed, Evelyn,' I whispered in her ear. 
She looked at me with a terrified glance and then was seized with a sudden fit of shivering. Oh, I cannot, I dare not. But Walter awaits you, I answered reproachfully. Does he? she asked, as though uncertain that I had spoken correctly. No, no, he waits no longer. Oh, what a frightful vision. I saw it as before. It has frozen my blood. But it is not... Could it be real? Nay, Evelyn, arouse yourself. You are made the sport of your own disordered and excited imagination. Remember that the hours are long to those who expect, and Walter is now listening to every distant step, and hoping that it may be yours. So he is, but I am very feeble. At this moment I could not bear to hear his reproaches. They would kill me. Have you not you yourself sought this interview? Trust me, Evelyn, he will not reproach you. Will he pardon? she asked abruptly, in an almost hopeful tone. I could not venture to answer that question, and said merely, It is very late. Are you not ready? Yes, but come with me. I complied with her request, and after assisting her into the carriage, for she was very weak, I took my seat beside her. During our ride I tried to reassure and inspire her with courage, nor did I fail to remind her of how anxiously she desired to behold her husband. The carriage stopped. Evelyn had become perfectly calm. She drew her veil over her thin and pallid face, saying, It would shock him if he saw at once how much I was changed, and then, with a firm step, descended from the carriage. I feared for her, though I was now far more agitated than she, and encircling her waist with my arm, we entered Mr. Merritt's counting-room together. Every desk was empty, not even a porter was stationed in the deserted apartment. We passed rapidly through the room, but at the door of the inner chamber Evelyn stopped, and caught hold of my hand just as I placed it upon the lock. Well might thronging memories cause her to pause, for that door had but too often flown open to welcome her. In another moment she herself turned the handle, and we found ourselves in an apartment which Mr. Merritt in happier days had furnished with the most extravagant elegance. We at first thought that the room was vacant, for there was no signs of life and motion. The fire in the grate had died out, and... The deepening twilight shed but a somber and uncertain light over the dim objects around us. We stood motionless, listening for Mr. Merritt's voice, and straining our eyes to pierce the gloom. Nothing was audible but the quick gasping of Evelyn's breath, nothing visible but the luxurious and empty chairs near us. I was about to speak when the rising moon, with her pure cold light, faintly illumined the chamber. Upon a sofa, in a remote part of the room, lay the figure of a man, wrapped in a large cloak. His back was turned towards us, but Evelyn instantly recognized the form of her husband, and the same thought crossed her mind that entered mine. Tired with watching and expectation, he had fallen into a heavy slumber. Evelyn withdrew her arm, and with a faltering step advanced towards him. Walter, she exclaimed, but he woke not. Walter, she added in a louder 
but even more thrilling voice. I am here, not to implore your pardon, that could not be, but to behold you once more, to claim at least your pity when you see the fearful changes that suffering and sin have wrought. Still no answer. Evelyn drew nearer and lightly placed her hand upon the arm of her husband, but drew it back with a terrific, heart-harrowing shriek. She had touched a corpse. Regardless of her safety, I rushed from the chamber. To whom or how I gave the alarm I know not, but when I re-entered the room several men, one of them bearing a light, followed me. To the latest day of my life I shall never forget the scene which then presented itself to my eyes. Evelyn was lying stretched half across the body of her husband. Her beautiful head rested upon his bosom, and one arm was tightly wound about his neck. We raised her up. Happily for her, she had fallen into a state of insensibility. In lifting her from her reincumbent position, the cloak was drawn from Mr. Merritt's shoulders. One hand hung lifeless over the side of the sofa, the other grasped a pistol, which was pressed upon his heart. He had died by his own hand. I would have hurried Evelyn away, but she revived, and springing from my arms again, she threw herself upon the corpse. Even in death there was a sorrowful expression upon that ghastly, upturned face, and the sharp cheekbones and sunken cheeks, the whitening hairs, the fallen jaw and livid lips, were to me full of terror. Oh, what they must have been to Evelyn! She clung to the lifeless body, abstractedly pushing the hair from the icy forehead, with her finger closing the lids of the glazed eyes, and placing her cheek to the open mouth that she might feel perhaps lingering breath. The only words she uttered were, This too. There was only this wanting. It is my work. Oh God, oh God, visit his sin upon me. The room was now filling with strangers, and the coroner had been summoned. I endeavoured to draw Evelyn away, but one arm was still twined about her husband, and my words fell upon an unconscious ear. A gentleman, whose face was familiar, stood near me. He saw my distress, and, without hesitation, lifted Evelyn in his powerful arms and bore her to the carriage. For an instant she struggled, and then her limbs relaxed. She had again become insensible. As I was following her from the room, I beheld upon the table where the light was placed a folded letter. It was addressed to Evelyn. The handwriting was that of her husband. I took it up and carried it away. Have you never seemed to yourself as though you were moving about in a dream? It was thus that I felt through that long evening and weary night, as I mechanically aided Ellen and Amy in administering to the bereaved and wretched Evelyn. Consciousness was speedily restored, but her whole appearance and demeanour had changed. The wildest bursts of grief were better than this mute, agonising despair. To arouse her from her stupor, I showed her Mr. Merritt's letter. 
The last words his hand had traced were as follows. From Mr. Merritt to Evelyn. The struggle is too great. I can no longer endure it, and heaven pardon me, I seek a criminal release. To behold you, Evelyn, would be to forgive. I know my own infirmity. I love you in spite of your shame. I would open my arms to receive you, though your name were ten times as blackened. But this cannot be. How could I meet the eyes of the world with a dishonored wife pressed to my heart? I must fly from myself and from you, for your image gives me no peace. Evelyn, too madly loved, too hopelessly ruined, your name will be the last upon my lips, thine and that of our child. Farewell. Yours in death, as through life. Walter. The effect of this letter upon Evelyn was not so marked as I had supposed it would be. She read and re-read and retained it in her hand, but never wept. The shock had been too great for tears. End of chapter 22